Hello and welcome to the Broadcast News Wrap, your shorthand guide to those all-important TV news stories brought to you by the Broadcast editorial team and guests. I'm senior reporter Max Goldbart, and this week we've got an exclusive interview with this year's McTaggart lecturer, David Olasoga. David takes us behind the scenes of the process behind last month's blistering address which decried an entire lost generation of black and Asian TV talent, while he also reveals to me how the media may have misread some of his finer points. Later, I'm joined by Broadcast International Editor John Elms to discuss MIPCOM's rather inevitable decision to transition to a virtual festival later this year. John, how are we? I'm good, Max. Yep. Uh, I mean, the same as I always am, working from home kind of staving off insanity and uh, and yeah, keeping to all the busy deadlines that we have. That's excellent to hear because uh, the last time we spoke, you were having a lazy, relaxed afternoon on a weekday and <laughs> you subsequently admonished yourself. Yes, because it made it sound like I wasn't actually doing any work, but that couldn't have been further from the truth. I was just giving the impression that I was laid back and relaxed, hmm. but naturally the fact I'm 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 extremely busy. I'm even more so this 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 week. You were mixing your work persona with your podcast persona. With, exactly, uh, it was all veneer. Results. It's sad, isn't it? It's a it's a veneer. Apologies, podcast listeners. I'm not usually as this bouncy. Good stuff, John. Well, we're we're are we reeling from the news that MIPCOM is going to be online only? I don't feel like we're reeling. I think this was. This was expected. Did 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 you ever think that uh, MIPCOM in in Cannes would be feasible? No, uh, you've uh, you absolutely hit the nail on the head there, Max. This has not made me real. Uh, what's the opposite of reeling? Staying stock still? Yeah, I was uh, fairly unmoved by this decision. I mean, ever since the announcement, the very late announcement that um, MIPCOM would be kind of recalibrating. Um, after you know, after all the previous kind of international TV events got cancelled, we've I suppose all just been waiting for kind of indications from Reed Needham what would happen to the event. Uh, you know, in terms of it it, it being cancelled, just because the world has not changed as much as everyone wanted it to, which is understandable. You know, everyone wanted there to be MIPCOM, but the the, the long and short of it is that companies still are hamstrung by the fact that there are travel bans in their own country. Um, a number of companies have already pulled out. We, you know, uh, were the first to report that ITV studios were doing that. Um, I heard from a number of sources that they were getting it and then they confirmed. Um, and then it's just been a slow trickle of, of large distributors pulling out. And then obviously, um, Quite recently, about a month ago um, or so, uh, all the time rolls into one at the moment, uh, Reed said that they were basically completely changing the format to making it a three-day event rather than a four-day event. Um, They were removing stands, which essentially kind of removes the heart of MIPCOM, because if you don't have stands, you don't have the distribution in it. To, uh, to my eyes, had become uh, a, a, an, a, an enlarged networking event for anyone who was comfortable enough or was permitted to travel or needed to travel to do some to do the event. And uh, there were very few 
companies of the larger companies that were still there to have a physical presence we get we kept on getting emails and, and and notes from companies saying there will be no physical presence in in MIPCOM this year. MIPCOM is such an important festival in the TV calendar. Can you see there being some sort of serious knock-on effects to having the festival being online only? So I think, you know, I think the world is is very the TV world, but you know, every industry is is acknowledges the difficulties that uh coronavirus has put on uh, the pandemic has put on companies and the way the industry normally does its business both in production um, commissioning and and distribution which is which is the kind of the main thrust of of MIPCOM um, so I think people will respond well to the the online event you know I think that they you know MIPCOM online plus which is their their online offering which as you said it was a hybrid uh, event they planned with a physical event, a, a, a shrunk down physical event, and a, a an, 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 an enlarged online uh, proposition. Obviously, now that's going to be the only thing. So I think people will still be going to that because it is a, a focal point in the calendar. Um, one thing that people have told me, uh, various people like fixtures, uh, big companies who are fixtures at um, uh, MIPCON, is that they you know they they feel it will come back. In 2021, and I, I, I can't see MIPCOM not coming back in 2021, assuming that we have got back to a semblance of normality. Of course, you know all those all those kind of caveats uh, because we can't predict the future. <laughs> but in, you know, Reed Media will want it to come back, and I think you know the industry wants it to come back. It is a huge event. It's one of the biggest, if not the biggest, of all the international markets uh, that we attend and the industry attends, and it is very important for the industry to have that face-to-face -face meeting. I mean, the TV industry has been built on face-to-face -face meetings and relationships. So to remove one of its main examples of that would be sad. And, mm. and, and I don't think people can countenance that. Good stuff. Well, John, it's been, uh, it's been good to chat about this stuff nonetheless. Mm. Uh, and we'll be coming back to you in just a little bit. But first of all, uh, I spoke with David Olasoga last week. David was basking in the glow of a really well-received 45th McTaggart address. So do say, stay tuned for the warm, soothing tones of David Olasoga and my ever so slightly awkward interjections. David, thanks, for, um, thanks so much for agreeing to chat. Um, undoubtedly, you know, we, we, were all, we were all really, really struck by your words last week. Uh, I'm sure you've had, you know, ton, tons of well wishes and and tons of good feedback. I wanted to, I wanted to know a, a, a couple of things. Um, what was it like performing without an audience? Um, just just out of interest, and and were you disappointed that you didn't get to to sort of d deliver it in the in the traditional way? Well, I think we've all got or had to get used to the idea of this strange disembodied existence. So I think it was less strange um, in late August than it would have been in, in late March when we were all getting used to it. So I, I mean, I do a lot of talks, um, obviously, usually to audiences, but I've given a lot of talks since lockdown um, in, in that format. Um, so I've got used to it, I guess. Um, mm. And I guess you write differently, knowing that there's not um, audience reaction um, and an audience to feel the energy off. Um, I have to say, I think last year, I probably did about somewhere between 50 and 70 
public engagements at uh, universities, at literary festivals, um, and lectures at Manchester, where I teach, of course. Um, and I'm really missing audience engagement and that, you know, the energy you get from that. And I sort of, when I think about the things that we're all thinking about things we're longing to have again, uh, and that that is something that um, I really miss. But I think you know, someone who works on screen and TV, I think if, if I can't adapt to talking to cameras, then I really, <laughs> uh, then nobody can. And I, I, I suspect I might've delivered the lecture like a very long piece to camera. Um, I think I probably slipped into presenter mode. Maybe a little bit, although you, you always seemed very assured, certainly. Oh, that's absolutely a <laughs> it was it was a very nerve-wracking thing to do and i i wrote in the guardian that um i've got very used to television there's not that much in tv that makes me nervous anymore i found live television terrifying when i first produced it i now sit on a sofa and know we're going live and it doesn't phase me but that was very intimidating to, mm. to write and deliver the mctaggart and and so do you think you would have written it in a in a different way had you been doing it uh, traditionally, say you'd say you'd been doing it last year or the year before? I, I would have done, yeah. I think I've, I've, I've learned over the past few months how to, uh, to write in a, in a different voice um, when there's no audience. I probably would have attempted probably unwisely some jokes if there'd been an audience. So we were probably all, all blessedly spared my attempt at jokes. If we're relying on historians for the laughs, I think we're in the worse trouble than we think we are. <laughs> yeah, that would be a problem. That would be a problem, but it's, it's good you didn't try any jokes because um, they could only have fallen flat. Doesn't strike me as a as a place to audition for your uh, your your, your uh, stand-up routine, the McTaggart. Certainly not. Certainly not. Do you, Do you feel it? It felt very much like you were saying something that needed to be said and and bringing lots of threads together that almost needed to be brought together. Has the has the feedback and and the fallout to the speech being what you expected broadly? Um, within the industry, it's been really positive. Um, I've not experienced a great deal of resistance to these ideas. And as you said, I think it is, it's a conversation that had already begun. The industry had already started moving in lots of positive directions. It was in Edinburgh full of announcements that would have happened irrespective of whether or not I was giving um, the McTaggart. So to a certain extent, it was an open door. The thing I wanted to remind us all and myself is that it's felt like that in the past. Um, we've had these moments of drawing a line in the sand and saying this time in the past. Um, and I felt it was important to say that. But I mean, the, the main challenge for me was um, when I was approached and asked to do it, um, you know, I had that sort of pit in the stomach panic moment, which I don't get when someone says do you want to go and do you know channel 4 news or do you want to go and you know present something i don't feel that nervousness i felt a very profound sense of, of nerves about it mm -hmm. and when i gave it some thought um in a very probably boringly english way i went out and walked my dog um and gave it some thoughts in the fields to the south of bristol where i live um and i decided it was an incredible opportunity and i had to say yes but if i was going to do it I had to be honest and to be honest meant being personal. Um, and that's what was truly terrifying. It would have been really dishonest of me to talk about those issues that face non-white people in the industry as if they'd never impacted upon me. That would have been a betrayal. It would have been an act of, 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 of deception. So to be 
forthright meant to be personal and that was um exposing so i i feel very exposed um i've talked about things i've never talked about before um i literally had to phone members of my family to say you don't know this i've never told you um but i'm going to talk about it in a speech i wanted you to know before you read it in the observer so um yeah i mean that feels very strange and i've i've made i think well for me feel very public um admissions and discussions about myself or my background in television programs i don't know why this felt different but it did feel very different mm, mm. and and you must have um i suppose you had a little bit of a somewhat of a blueprint when i think about michaela cole's speech in particular um you you were saying quite different things and touching on quite different themes but the the way i would connect the two is that you were kind of interweaving personal experiences with more more of a sort of systemic discussion about how the industry treats people from a diverse background um so so did you were you somewhat influenced by by Michaela's speech in particular um I wasn't and I and I wouldn't dream of trying to impersonate Michaela I thought which was an incredible performance and for me to admit to a history of clinical depression is as nothing to what you discussed and the experiences that she um she revealed during that. So um, I watched everyone I could find and uh, I, I, and um, the festival sent me transcripts of the ones that I, that I couldn't watch. So I read or watched, um, I don't know how many, but um, as many as I could back to 1998 when I saw Peter Basiljit when I was um, on the ones to watch um, in the festival. And I, I, I sort of took um, structural notes mm. from, from all of them. I mean, I thought Amanda Anucci, unsurprisingly, um structured his with with brilliance and he could not only attempt but actually land jokes um so he set the bar very high um and i thought there was an incredible openness and candidness in john snow's mctaggart um and I, I i i i but i watched um everyone i could so i was sort of um on my rowing machine at home um in early august i was painting my kitchen with um, YouTube on with the uh, McTaggart lectures from the past while I tried to daub paint on the walls. <laughs> excellent, excellent. And, and how long did it take to write roughly? Was, is, was it a real labour of love? I, I wrote multiple versions um, and, you know, I'm used to writing lectures and um, I think that they're, they're like programme scripts. I think the idea that a lecture is um, something you knock off is is deluded and I'm sure there are people who can wing it and I'd, I, I long to be one of them, but I, mm. I have a real belief in process and thoroughness. So um, multiple drafts, I'm not quite sure how many, and lots of conversations with people. I was quite saddened by the fact uh, that at the beginning of the, the speech or towards the beginning, you, you uh, questioned, we'll see, we will see if I have a career afterwards, introducing what you were then going to say. Is that still a, a kind of genuine concern of yours that you're thinking about or have you been um, uh, placated by, by people's response? Well, I've had conversations with the people who I admire in television that have been incredibly supportive and that's before and after the speech. So it's not so much that I sort of feel I'm going to be punished. I feel that there is a sort of sense that black people can't speak out. Mm. And that's very deep and it may well be ill-founded um, you know, in my case, but um, I felt that most of my career, that these are things that cannot be said. These are truths that have to remain unspoken and that black people are punished for um, 
ever suggesting anything is to do with race for um, for describing the way actions intentionally or unintentionally affect them. There's a punishment. I mean, I think we live I think we live in a society where there are those who regard it as more offensive for somebody to be accused of acting in a way that was racist than it is for someone to be racist. Mm. So black people, I think, are very nervous of talking about race because I think it very often comes with censure and punishment. And I think it's what leads in many cases to that phenomenon I talked about in the lecture, which is black people being seen as difficult. I was talking to a senior black person in television um, years ago who warned me that I was being seen as difficult. And mm -hmm. they said, but whenever I hear that, it, I just ignore it because I don't know of a black person in television who hasn't been um, given that label. But I think the idea that this sort of Damocles um, hangs over you and it doesn't affect your actions, I think would be naive. So I've never felt at liberty to discuss these issues. I always felt that, that to discuss them was um, to take a, a chance, it was a risky thing to do. And I felt I wanted to acknowledge that, mm. but I did that. Um, it's an odd thing I can admit to weakness out of a position of relative strength. So there's a sort of irony there. I felt strong enough to be able to admit to the damage done to me and other people I've known in the industry because I feel relatively not secure. Anyone who feels secure is deluding themselves. Mm. But I feel I would be naive if, and I would be dishonest if I didn't say I do have a certain position um, that I didn't have 10 years ago. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose part of your point is that when when those things were actually happening to you, you weren't nearly as empowered to to be able to speak out about them, and you certainly wouldn't have uh, had been handed the platform that that you were handed last week. No, and I've seen I've seen you know, black and Asian people in the industry be punished for calling things out as as being influenced by race, and it, it's a very sort of it's an insidious thing because a lot of what I'm talking about is unexamined thinking. Now I know people who I regard as friends, who I would work with at the drop of a hat, who are brilliant filmmakers, people I admire. But I think they don't examine their thinking on this. Now, I have no doubt that there are arenas of life where I don't examine my, my thinking as much as I should. I make myself, whenever I'm involved in a program, I make myself think about gender in a way that I'm sure I didn't when I was a young program maker. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, you know, I'm when at the end of a program, I, if I don't feel that gender has been hardwired through my thinking, and that we've we've reflected um, as fifty fifty as much as possible, and you know, I work in fields of history which are very often dominated by women, so sometimes it's easy. If if we don't do that, then that's a failure, and I regard that as a failure. Um, so we all have to do it, and it's not sort of non-white, brown, and black people telling everybody off this is one of the areas where I don't think we examine our thinking, but there are others and we're all subject to them. And when I talk about race, I often say us and we, because all of us, you, just because you, you, you have pigmentation doesn't mean you're not affected by growing up in a society that has structural racism. We all are. Mm. Um, and it is, it is a collective effort that we all need to do. But I think this idea of, of unexamined thinking mm. um, to me is at the heart of it. Most of what I've seen in my industry was, was, was unintentional. But that doesn't mean 
it's not damaging and it doesn't mean that it isn't a problem and it doesn't mean that it's affecting our ability to be an industry that reflects both in our makeup who works in the industry and in the stories we tell the country that we serve i felt like some of your your heftiest uh, criticism during the speech and i think we we've, we've spoken about this before actually um was reserved for the kind of oxbridge networks uh, and and informal recruitment processes and and practices and uh we we really liked your line about diversity used to be seeking a balance of Oxford and Cambridge. I thought that was a, a really telling line. Um, broadcasters are talking a good game about this at the moment, about improving that informal recruitment process and 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 those practices that have existed for for so long. Do you um, uh, do you kind of believe that good game? Can can you see there being shifts in in how those networks and practices work? Um, only if that is applied to the indie sector as well. And I think one of the dangers, I mean, I think if I have a frustration on how the lecture has been reported is that it's been seen as a critique of the BBC. Mm. Some of those experiences were not within the BBC. Um, this is an industry-wide problem. Most people in television are not employed by broadcasters. They're employed by producers. Now, I think broadcasters, because they are, they're also commissioners, have the power to force the the broad the production sector um into best practice into more formal um, um recruitment practices but i think we're missing the point if we aim all our criticism at the broadcast i mean watching you know i mean simon albury the campaigner i'm i'm always um fascinated when he he does has this habit of tweeting team photographs that mm. independent production companies have on their websites um uh, which which are i mean those you can only post those pictures if you're not thinking that <laughs> this is a problem. I mean, how naive. I mean, there are programs in which the on-screen talent is diverse and you post a picture of a team that isn't in a city whose workforce is 36% BAME, 41% by population, um, and think that's okay. Mm. You wouldn't make that admission unless you weren't thinking about these, these issues or didn't think they were important. The indie sector too often is let off the hook um, and I'm frustrated that this has been seen as um, a critique of the BBC. Um, I think the, the Indies really have not taken this seriously, anywhere near as, enough seriously as they have. But then, you know, again, I'm seeing, I'm seeing improvements. I'm, I'm seeing, um, you know, because I do drag my you know, heels and kick and scream a bit about diversity on the productions that I work on that aren't from mm -hmm. my company. Um, and I'm finding myself having to do that a lot, a lot less at the moment. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, your your um, frustrations, uh, the, the interpretation that it would have been about the BBC or or broadcasters. I, I often think kind of beyond the TV trade publication world, um, there is a kind of almost a lack of understanding of how TV works. We're, we're, we're an incredibly insular um mm. industry we all marry each other for a start which isn't, isn't very good we all talk shop i mean anybody who's had a a, a party where half the people are tv and half the people aren't can see how mm. the tv people will just start talking shop at the uh, at the drop of a hat and i think we sort of forget that it's not all obvious and people don't understand the structure and the idea that channel four programs aren't made by channel four yeah. is you know, comes as a shock to people so i think we are we are terribly inward looking mm. <laughs> which means we sometimes forget that um, our discussions about ourselves are interpreted by others in different ways. Mm. Uh, I, I'm, I'm always um, 
I'm always surprised at how when people talk about criticisms of the BBC, my response is usually, well, I don't work in news, so I don't know anything about it. Mm. Um, because it's a quite odd idea that, that news is such a separate fiefdom um, to the world I work in, that, um, that I'm not sort of, you know, walking the, uh, the, the floor in MBH, uh, mm. knowing what's going on. So we often imagine people understand our world better than they do, mm. um, just because we're obsessed with it and immersed in it. <laughs> I think that's so true. It's, it comes up with like BBC presenter pay, for example, like everybody, everybody who covers that story thinks that uh, every presenter that's ever been on the BBC is employed by the BBC. Whereas people within know that's not the case, but maybe don't communicate that so well. Yeah. That's also, we're not very interesting. I, I mean, <laughs> we are absolutely fascinated. Um, by our, our own industry, and we probably should be. I mean, it's mm. I guess the, most of us wanted to work in this industry because it's so incredible. Um, but I think I sometimes think we forget that the rest of the world isn't quite as fascinated <laughs> by what happens behind the screen than, than what happens on the screen. But to me, the, the big feedback of giving this lecture is not just that I've had very kind words from people I admire in the industry. I've also had a lot of people who, don't, who aren't in the industry anymore who've written to me and said that was my experience and that's why I left. Mm, mm. So I've even had people who, are, who were on courses with me, the failed diversity inclusion courses that mm. I mentioned, get in touch and saying, do you remember me from that course? I've left the industry. Um, mm. And that's been actually quite depressing that um, I spoke about my experiences and those of others I, I knew and many more people have written to me or written in one case to the guardian and said that chimes in my experience. Mm. Um, and you know, people have been damaged by our failings, which is why this really has to be, and just must be the, the line in the sand, the moment mm. of real change, because those testimonies, those emails I've received of people really pouring their hearts out, really had got emotional watching the lecture. Um, because it resonated with their experiences. Mm, mm. And that's quite humbling. Mm. Well, look, David, thanks so much for, um, thanks so much for chatting. Um, and it's been My really pleasure. good. To, it's been really good to just hear a little bit more about kind of how you put the lecture together and, and what the, what the feedback and, and fallout has been. So I really appreciate it. Brilliant, Max. Thank you very much. International editor, John Elms is still with me. Uh, as we move on to a, a brand new section, which, which we may only feature this week. And that section is called What We've Been Reading. John, what have you been reading? I love the fact that this, has been, this segment has been created specially for me by dint of the fact that I read a TV industry book. I got a pre-publication press copy of No Rules Rules, Netflix and the Culture of Reinvention which is a Reed Hastings uh, co-authored management book, um, with, which he wrote with uh, Erin Mayer, um, a professor at Ansiad Business School. Um, and I, I, I saw it was gonna come out earlier this year, so I, I got onto the, the publishers to try and get a copy because I thought it would have loads of really juicy anecdotes of how uh, Reed Hastings came up with Netflix, got like the deals in place for all the big shows that they've done. And there are a few of those, but it's not, it's not a content memoir. It's not a memoir uh, 
traversing uh, Reed Hastings' life through the entertainment business. Mm. It's got some key moments in his traversing of the entertainment business, but it, it's, it's not a book. It's not like a warts and all account of his life in entertainment, which is a little bit of a shame because, you know, that's always quite juicy. But it is an important book in terms of showing how and why he thinks Netflix has got to where it is today. And that would have been the reason that the publishers wanted it. You know, it's a, it's a management book about the most in vogue media company in the world and how it became the behemoth that it is now. And, uh, and I think, you know, that to hear from the CEO of one of these, you know, gazelle-like, unicorn-like um, companies, tech come media companies is 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 valuable for for people in the publishing industry and people in the business industry as well mm. so yeah i've been reading that mm. and, and what was the most interesting thing that you learned uh, what was the most interesting <laughs> thing that i learned <laughs> nothing no um i mean there were there were loads of things i suppose one of the one of the things that um is is always been has been kind of said about netflix is that got a kind of ruthless way of it's keeping its employees and it's keeper test which is their way of keeping employees um you know their their staff i suppose like at the best in in the business is 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 does sound quite hard it's it's, it's basically the premise of asking your your line manager or your line manager a person's line manager or boss or whatever has to look at their employee and answer a few questions about them, about whether they would fight to keep them in the company. And, you know, I suppose these criteria are different, different for different people in the company, be they engineers or, or product development or, or what we write about, which is TV production and content creation. And if you don't, you know, satisfy that criteria, they will they will fire you or, or or move you on with a generous severance pay. That's their you know that's their mantra. I mean it it was interesting that the week that it came out, two days later, their long-standing VP of content, Cindy Holland, um, has moved out of the company after 18 years. I mean you know Cindy Holland is one of the most important content people in the business, and she's. She's been replaced. I, what, you know, I, I'm not linking that to the keeper test. I have, I have literally no idea the reasons behind that. Mm. But you know, it, it was just interesting to read this book and then and read that um, in, mm. in, in Ted yeah. Sarandos, who's the co-CEO and chief content officer, streamlining his 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 kind of commissioning team. It sounds like it comes somewhat recommended. That was that was John Elms on on Reed Hastings' new book and and. We look forward very much to the next edition of what we've been reading, which could be just around the corner or could be many years away. John, thank you so much for joining me on this week's Broadcast News Wrap. Absolute pleasure, Max. Always like to be involved. Thank you for listening to the Broadcast News Wrap. I'm senior reporter Max Goldbart, and you've been listening to the legend that is David Olasoga and Broadcast International Editor and our new resident book reviewer, John Elms. You can check out past episodes of the pod on Spotify and iTunes or on the website via www.broadcastnow.co.uk.